0: King of their Saints, Matthew chapter 4. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come to you in awe and anticipation of once again just seeing um, our King as he comes, our King as he proves his worth, our King as he is exalted, Lord, not only in the pages of Scripture but in our own hearts, in our own lives. And that is what we want, we want to see you, Jesus, and, and grow um, more in love with you. And so we are so grateful that you've chosen to reveal this aspect of, of your life, of this aspect of your ministry, how, again, you want to um, truly come to the place of, of identifying with us so that we can identify with you. And so draw us to your heart. Simply give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us. Your church, we ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. 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 All right, uh, Matthew chapter 4. It begins very simply. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. the devil left him and behold angels came and ministered to him within this passage we see it we, we call it the temptation of christ and i think it's important to realize that there are temptations that have come he has these three temptations each one is we're going to be looking at as sort of dealing with that same the way the enemy how he brings his temptations and keep in mind He really doesn't have to change. There's an old saying, if it's broke, don't fix it. The way that he tempts the Lord, the way that he tempted Adam and Eve, the same technique that he still uses even today. But it it begins this, and keep in mind, we just saw the Lord being baptized. We saw then that beautiful picture of the Trinity, and we went into the depth of what that Trinity was. Now at this point, after he now is baptized, after the Spirit alights upon him, After the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, if you are recall there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he was already in the wilderness, but at this point, he's led into the wilderness. He's, in other words, into the more desolate area of the wilderness. So he's in the wilderness, yes, But he's led further into it. And so in that sense, you almost see here, there's this contrasting that goes on. One, there's a contrast that we're actually going to see when it deals with the the, the first temptation there with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is here in the wilderness. And so we'll be looking at a little bit of that contrasting. Also he leaves that beautiful area that oasis almost there by the Jordan where you do have that water and now he goes into this place of the dryness. So this is sort of what that wilderness mentality is supposed to speak to. So Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, The first question that we see here is, yes, it was the Spirit that led Jesus. He leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the first passage that most people will question, whether you are aware of its location or not, I'm going to give it to you, is found in the the book of James, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And in the book of James, what we see is this. There's a, a portion of this scripture, and I want you to be clear on what it says. So we're going to go a little bit slower. We're going to expound on it so that you aren't led astray to really what's going on. He says this, James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So the fullness of what we're seeing here is he first says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. So keep in mind that he says God isn't going to tempt anyone. That's, That's the first and foremost truth that you have to take out of this. God is not going to tempt you. Now, there is this side thing, although God will not be the one to tempt you, there are some times that He's going to allow either the Spirit or He's going to allow someone else to lead you to a place where you can be tempted. So although God does not tempt, it doesn't mean that He won't lead you to a place where you can be tested, where you can be tempted. So that's a misnomer. When, when they say here, well, you know, God said He wouldn't test anyone. Why is He testing you? He's not testing. The Spirit leads Him to a place where, where he can be, God isn't the one who's doing the t- testing. Now, the second part of verse 13 is this. Not only does he say, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. So now comes the big question. If Jesus is God, which we already know that he is, we covered that in depth, um, can he be tempted by evil? And Good question. I I think that that's something that we should look into. The first passage I want to show you is this. In the book of Philippians, I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 7. Philippians 2, 7 is a passage that you know. It's that one, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. But in verse 7, it makes a statement, but he made himself of no reputation. The literal term of that would be he emptied himself. So I want you to realize that what happens is while Jesus is here, yes, he is God. He can at any time choose to use any divine attribute that he chooses to as the Father would give him direction to do it. But keep in mind that Jesus as being fully God has chosen this method. He emptied himself. Now he's chosen to say, I'm not going to practice my abilities that I do have as God. I won't do whatever I want to with, you know, um, showing my omniscience and showing my omnipotence and showing everything that I do have as God. So what we see is this. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. So he empties himself. Two other passages that you need to be aware of, both found in the book of Hebrews. The first is found in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Let me begin to read that to you. It declares this, Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, not not in most things, but in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Understand what here the author of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus in all things had to be made like, and of course we've, we've made note that he is fully God, he's fully man, and this man, he's that kinsman redeemer. He had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So what we're seeing in this is that as Jesus is not just fully God, but he's also fully man, that in his portion of doing the ministry here on earth, what he chose to do is to be made like his brethren. He chose to say, not using my divine attributes, but I'm going to come as man fully. Now what he does as man, keep in mind that Jesus Christ, when he was born, you know as well as I do that the Spirit came upon Mary. So in that, he had the Spirit in him. But at the same time, there's a difference of having the Spirit with you, having the Spirit in you, and having the Spirit upon you. There's three different and unique distinct events that the Holy Spirit has. John, in, in his gospel, says, you know, that Jesus said, hey, you know, the Spirit is with you. But then he's going to breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will be in them. But in the book of Acts, he's going to say the Spirit is going to come upon you, which is something different. That's what we would be calling the baptism of the Spirit. So when Jesus here was baptized, it's, it's, what we recognize is that he has, in a sense, the Spirit coming upon him. He has the Spirit in him, but the Spirit comes upon him, in a sense, the baptism of that Spirit. Being empowered, even where the Spirit more fully gives him that ability to the ministry. So, when Jesus here empties himself, what the author of Hebrews says, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. That he had to be an identifier with us. So, the question still being, all right, well, can he be tempted? So if he's fully God and fully man, if he chooses to empty himself of the divine attributes, being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's now, in a sense, what Luke is going to show us, that Jesus Christ is a man, and what he does, he does in the power and the direction of the Spirit. But here, he's made like his brother, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, to be that substitution. You can't, you know, you have to substitute an eye for an eye or an ear for an ear and a man for a man. So when Jesus comes, he comes as a man and he dies as a man. But keep in mind, it was God who became a man, God who emptied himself, God who said, I'm going to just lay aside, although I am fully God and I don't consider Robert to be equal with God, I'm going to lay aside those things and come and empty myself and become a man. In verse 18, it declares this of Hebrews 2, for in that he himself also suffered being tempted, he is able also to aid those who are tempted. So when it says that God cannot be tempted, we realize that God in God form cannot be tempted. Jesus as the God-man, as he chooses to empty himself, it does say very clearly in verse 18, for in that he himself suffered being tempted, Now he's able to aid those who are also being tempted. So the author of Hebrews lets us know that, yes, as he empties himself, he's now able to be tempted because at this point we see that he's fully man as well. Now, in verse 15, we see this. Chapter 4, so Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're, we're noting here that what we do see is, yes, Jesus Christ was tempted. So when James says, listen, God cannot be tempted, what we realize is that Jesus laid aside his divine attributes So that as he comes through, yes, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So keep in mind that what we're seeing is this, that what the enemy will do is he'll play on your desires. And and I think this is important to note that when it comes to temptations, that what Jesus is doing is this. We're going to see as we go through this passage that he's going to have some desires. He's going to be hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. And so he's hungry. And, and as he's hungry, he, the, you know, the enemy says, hey, you see those little stones? And, of course, the stones there in that area that he has, they actually look like little biscuits. They're, 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 they're kind of flattened with a little... Cup. So they, they literally, they look like a rock biscuit. And he says, hey, make those stones into bread. Um, if that's where you are. so there's a desire. so keep in mind that a lot of temptations is just going to be playing off our own desires. So Jesus now back in Matthew chapter 4 is led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he's there for a specific reason he's there to be tempted now, We've noted that as we were going into the the book of Matthew, and we talked about here, there's going to be these couple areas where the first thing we looked at was the coming of the king. And now we're in that portion where we're looking at the coronation of the king. Once we get into chapter 5, we'll be looking at the constitution. But this is that coronation. Where the coronation is, he's there, he's baptized, the spirit comes upon him, the the father speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I will please. This also is part of his coronation. It's a test. Are you worthy to be the king? Are you worthy to be this last Adam? And so we see here that he's now led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want to take this moment just to to share a truth with you because so often... That we see you know that we blame our failures on something on the outside we, we blame our, our failures on either a situation we blame it on, on you know circumstances and I want you to realize that, that there's a, a truth in scripture that spiritual and moral failures are not caused by outward circumstances if you have a failure either spiritually or or morally. It's not caused by the situation. The situation happened and that's why I reacted. No, the the situation isn't what caused what happened to happen. The situation just simply revealed what's there. Put in mind that what what God does is through situations, it's almost as if we're a cup with an open lid. None of you have ever had a cup with an open lid in your car and you hit a bump. Now, when you have a cup with an open lid in the car, you hit a bump, whatever in the cup spills out. Now, the bump doesn't make what's in the cup. The bump just reveals what was already in the cup. And when you go through life and you have a failure, keep in mind, it's just a road bump. Now, whatever comes out was already in there. It didn't make what was in there. That was already in there. You have to become aware of that truth so that when you realize this didn't, cause me to be angry or frustrated. I'm already angry and frustrated. This simply reveals that I have an area in my heart that I'm not submitted to the Lord. And so I don't have his peace. I don't have his joy. And I need to come back to realize that. So we're seeing here that as he's now brought into the wilderness to be tempted, it's just so important to realize that it's not the wilderness, it's not the circumstance, it's not the, um, the situation that's going to cause um, the Lord to either have a success or, or, or not success. It's the inward man himself. And this was the problem with Adam. Keep in mind that here Jesus in the wilderness. Where was Adam? He was in a garden. He was in a garden. The lush, green, all the animals, you know, where, where the rivers met. And he's like, hey, this is it. But yet he had a temptation and he literally failed. And as as Adam failed in his, it wasn't the situation, it wasn't the the, the circumstance, it was Adam himself. Now the beautiful thing about Jesus is that you have that thing where Adam is is in this garden, Jesus is in the wilderness. Now contrast that also, because he just left this beautiful oasis, this oasis in which everything was going well, there was a, a lot of people that was there, now he's all by himself. The, the, the father and the, was speaking, this is my beloved son. The spirit was coming down alighting upon him. And now Jesus, as we look at this, seems to be all alone. Keep in mind that that spirit had already come upon him. So he is now in the spirit through the sense. But you see those contrastings. And I think it's important to note the contrastings because you can't blame failures on circumstances. You can't blame failures on, you know, this was the situation... I don't know how many times as a young Christian I would in my head say, well, I wouldn't be mad if it wasn't for that. God says, no, you just got anger in your heart. You're just going to get mad. And if it's not that, it's something else. And if you have my spirit, if you are are literally led by me and guided by me, the situation can happen. And you're just going to simply say, Lord, it's yours. It's yours. You don't have to get mad. You don't have to get upset. You don't have to get frustrated. You're able to surrender those things over to the Lord. So now that he's in the wilderness, he's there to be tempted by the devil. Now it says here in verse 2 that when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. There's two passages that you should be aware of for you don't take or simply jot it down. The first is found in Exodus chapter 34 verse 28. Now, in Exodus chapter 34, um, I'm going to actually read just two verses to you. I'm going to read verse 27 and 28, so you can kind of see it a little bit in context. But it says in Exodus um, 34, beginning in verse 27, "...then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with you in Israel." So, Moses is writing down the commandments. In verse 28 says this, So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he neither ate bread nor drank water. Absolutely incredible that here he's with the Lord. God is the one who's sustaining him in the presence. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. As he's hanging out with the Lord for 40 days, eventually he finally gets the Ten Commandments done. Now talk about not being in a rush. You know, he's just there with the commandments and he's he's writing down, but he's 40 days in this process. The next passage that I want to share with you is in 1 Kings chapter 19. Again, I'm going to read to you just two verses to keep you with the context. But it declares this in verse 7 of 8 of 1 Kings 19. It says, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him. This is Elijah. And said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So I want you to see that fasting for 40 days is not uh, an uncommon thing. It's interesting that the two places that we see where the fasting of 40 days was what? Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets. There is this this point now of the mindset of, okay, now, if, if both the law and the prophet, if they fasted for these 40 days and 40 nights, and if Jesus here is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, what is it that we need to learn about fasting within this? I want you to first just gravitate over to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be covering this in a few weeks. But I want to share this with you now to kind of keep you within in a context here. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. He, he makes this statement as the Lord begins to, to, to share He says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. He's talking about fasting, he says, and there's other people who do fast, but they're hypocrites. He says, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. But surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father, who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So the Lord talks about there is a true way to fast and there's a way that is a fasting in hypocrisy. When you fast so that people see you fast or they realize you're fasting and and so they're looking at you and say, "Oh, how spiritual you are." And and you're you're trying to show them how spiritual you are by your fasting. Jesus himself didn't say, hey guys, I'm going to go fasting for 40 days. He just, he left the multitude and went and he fasted for these 40 days. Moses himself had not planned on fasting, but as he was there hanging out with God and with the Ten Commandments, he just naturally said, I I have no need of the food. I have no need of the strength. And for 40 days, he didn't. As Elijah now is exhausted and weary, the angel feeds him for the second time. And so, I don't know what kind of food he got that second time, but it was able to sustain him for 40 days within the journey. Now, there's a key. If you want to know fasting, there's a passage found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. And in Isaiah 58, I'm going to read you just a couple of verses. I'm going to start in verse 3 and read all the way down to verse 6, where the Lord is talking to um, those who are... Fasting, but he makes this statement. Isaiah 58 verse 3, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? So this here is the cry of the hypocrite worshiper. It's like, I'm doing this, I'm fasting, you owe me. I'm doing this, so now you should pay greater attention to me. And so what they're doing is they say, listen, I've been fasting. Aren't you seeing this? I've been fasting. Haven't you taken notice of this? Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And that's what those people, the hypocrites there in Matthew 6 were doing. They were fasting, but they say, look at me. Now, the here, sometimes we fast and we don't have other people look at us. But how often do we fast so that God looks at us? How often do we fast so that, okay, I'm about to pray for this, and I'm gonna give myself over to fasting. So now that I'm giving myself the fasting, now you really are gonna look at me now and hear these prayers and do this. But the prayer of the hypocrite, the fast of the hypocrite is so someone looks at them. Now, whether it's someone who's outside or it's having God look at you, that's a fasting of hypocrisy. Let's take a look a little further as it says here in the middle of verse three where he says, after he says, why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure. He says, you're so excited because you're so spiritual now. I'm so happy that I'm fasting because look at how spiritual I am, Lord. Look at what you're going to do. He says, when you fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. Indeed, you fast for a strife and debate and you strike with the fist of the wicked, with with the fist of wickedness, you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Mm -hmm. So what the Lord is saying is eventually you're going to mature. You're going to mature in your Christian walk and you're going to mature in what you understand are things that are necessary. There is going to be a time and we'll, we'll, I, I, I'll just quote it because in Matthew chapter 16, the, the disciples of John come to the Lord and say, why is it that your disciples don't fast? And we do. Why is it the Pharisees fast? We fast, but your disciples don't fast. And Jesus says, why? Why would you fast? The bridegroom is here. They're celebrating. There's going to be a time when I leave. At that point, then they will begin to fast. So there's going to be a time where you mature in what you understand to be this practice of your Christian walk. And I do believe that it should be a practice within your Christian walk. Now, there are ways that you can change up a fast. There's there's a way that you can say, listen, I'm only going to eat so much or I'm going to give away. I'm not going to be eating meats. I'm only going to be eating vegetables. So, So you can do that kind of fast. And so there are some people who will simply say, I won't eat anything. And you can have where you don't eat. Some people can say, I won't eat and I won't drink. So there's different ways of fasting. But each one, it's not important which one you choose. What's important is this: what's your heart going into it. And this is the key to fasting. It isn't, I, you know, the God's not going to listen unless you hit that 40-day mark. Um, you prepare your heart right away. But he says, listen, you're gonna mature in this and you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. He goes, is this a fast that I've chosen? A day for men to afflict his souls? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and acceptable day to the Lord? He said, you're acting all miserable. And you're fasting, they say, look at how, how I'm afflicting myself. Would you please pay attention? I don't know if you've ever noticed that there was a time in the Middle Ages that these people would literally take these, these whips and, and smack themselves on the back and they would afflict themselves and thinking, look at how you know pious I am, I'm causing myself harm. And that's what their, their mindset is in the fast. I'm doing something that, that's so dramatic to me, you have to pay attention. It's almost by saying, listen, um, I'm going to throw myself off the pinnacle of a temple. (laughs) Pay attention. Look at me. And we see here that what what God declares is this. After he asks that question, is this a fast I've chosen? In verse 6 he says this, is this not the fast I have chosen? So now he changes, he says this, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry that you bring that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked and cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then the light shall break forth as the morning and your healing like this shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard and then you shall call the You shall call and the Lord will answer and he will cry and he will say, here I am. It isn't about God hearing you. It's about you hearing God. And I think it's so important that when you fast, it's just like, Lord, I don't know what's going on. And I don't want distractions from my own carnality to get in the way. And I'm going to push those things away for a while because I want to hear from you. And this is what Jesus does. He's fasted now for forty days and forty nights. Now, people who are in the know, and I've never fasted that long, so just don't don't think I'm that spiritual. But but people who are in the know say that by the time you get to forty days within your fast and you become hungry, the body is now eating itself, and you're you're to the point where you're going to be dying soon. So there there comes a point where after about five or six days, you, you no longer are hungry. You, you're just, you're not hungry. You gotta really brush your teeth a lot because you get this foul dragon breath, but you're not hungry at all. And, and you, can, you can literally go through, you can do what you do and you have no appetite. But once you hit this 40 day mark, they say, then you will begin to be hungry. Now, once you begin to be hungry, you're to the point of you're dying. And so contrast that with, with Adam. Adam was life and and you know young and powerful, and here Jesus is to the point of almost being dead. And as he's there in the wilderness, so you take a look at these contrasts that's there. And so when it says afterwards he was hungry, and this is where men who are in the nose are have a better understanding because they say literally his body is about to eat itself, and and he's at that point where um, he's going to be dying soon. At that point when he was at his weakest point where he's now hungry and his body is now, the cravings are turned on because like if you don't eat something now, you're going to be dying. So the body just, you know, makes the correction to, you know, the fasting. Now verse 3, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And that is his weakest moment, the enemy comes to him. Not in his strength. He didn't come to him at his baptism. But he comes at a place of weakness. And I think this is so important because what Jesus has is doing is this. And we've already noted there, you know, where God cannot be tempted. But through um, Philippians and through the two passages in Hebrews, we realize that here, Jesus Christ was made like us. This is humanity is going through And so as the enemy is coming through, and he's about to tempt the Lord, I want you to realize that God doesn't resist the enemy with his divinity. What God does is he resists the enemy with the power of God. What is the power of God? The Word of God. This is the beautiful thing about how Jesus Christ resists temptation. The power of God he uses is not the power of God within him, not his own deity, but the power of God that he chooses to use is the word of God. Why is that important? Well, if Jesus used scripture, that power of God, and overcame temptation, then we, as people who also are tempted, we too can use scripture, and that becomes the power of God for us to overcome temptation. Um, the the psalmist wrote that Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. That when you're, when the word of God is there moving, all of a sudden when the temptation comes in, you know, he's like, I don't want that. Why would I want that? When the word of God says, this is what I want to do instead. I want to do the word of God. And so we're we're looking to this, and I think it's so important that He comes in verse three at the weakest moment. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. The question isn't um, if, as in you might be, you might not be. But the question in in the way that he says if in the actual Hebrew would mean since you are the Son of God. Now, Now keep in mind that he's now kind of baiting the Lord. He says, Since you're the Son of God, as you, as you recognize, he says, command these stones to become bread. Now, as he says, if you are the Son of God or since you are the Son of God, I want you to realize that here, he's saying you should prove yourself that you're the Son of God by simply saying, hey, make these stones become bread. If that's who you are, do this. Keep in mind that at the very end of Matthew chapter 3, what did we see? We see here the, the Spirit coming and alighting upon the Lord. And the voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Don't be saying if you're the son of God. I know I'm the son of God. The, 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 the voice from heaven, you know, verified in the witnesses that I was the son of God. And but here the enemy says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. At this point, I want to share with you a passage before your note taker simply jot it down. You don't have to turn there, but do jot it down. It's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Let me read it to you. It simply says this for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. He uses these three terms. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three, if you remember, we we quoted from from 1 John 2.16 when we were there in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, remember what we noted there in verse 7. Let me just read it to you. Because at this point, or verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Ah, oh, the lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And so we see here that when you have the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that was in a sense how the enemy, you know, tempted Eve by saying, why don't you, cause, cause look at it, it looks amazing. And, and, and it's good for food that you can consume it. Now, the very first thing that the enemy does to the Lord is he uses the first of that, the lust of the flesh. He says, oh my goodness. Now, remember, as as Eve saw that fruit and he says, oh, it's good for food, what does the enemy do? He comes to the Lord and he says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Are you hungry? You know, and I, I find it amazing that here the enemy wants to come And so often we see that here it's that same thing. He goes and he's like a broken record. He doesn't have to change it. But I want you to note that there's something deeper here within the enemy coming to the Lord and saying, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. That What the enemy begins to do is this. So often in the way that he begins to speak is he tries to cast doubt upon who God is and his relationship that he wants to have with us. I want to take you back and just jot this down, or if you want to just maybe put a marker there, we're going to back up to Genesis 3 for these three temptations. Because in the very first time that here, the enemy comes on the scene. It says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts which was in the field, the Lord God has made and he said to the woman has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden now of course we covered that when we went through the foundations of Genesis because what God has said: listen you can eat of every tree with the exception of one you can't and the enemy takes this positive thing you can eat of every tree it's all yours with one exception the enemy now turns what God said in a positive into a negative by saying, um, has God said you shall not eat of every tree? So rather than saying you can eat of every tree with this exception, he turns it a negative. And God said that you shall not eat of every tree. The same thing that he's doing with the Lord. He's telling him, has God said, here you are, you're hungry. There's stones all over here. You could make those stones and turn into bread. Has God said that you shouldn't eat? Has God in his will for your life? And I think it's so interesting that what the enemy begins to do is this, and and note this, the enemy, when he causes you to first be tempted, tries to whisper in your mind or in your ear, in your heart, that God doesn't care. Isn't that what he said with the eat? Has God indeed said you can't eat a very... Why doesn't he care that you can't eat? And here he does the same thing to the Lord. Here you're hungry. Make these stones bread. And the enemy wants us to get us this thing that that God doesn't care. That God, you know, where he's not going to provide for the things that you really need. And, And so he suddenly comes in and through that where... What the enemy begins to do is this. He, he has a way of saying that God is keeping something back from you that could really make you happy right now. And that's what a temptation is. I want to be happy. And so I want this. This would make me happy. Well, we all know about things making us happy. Things only make us happy until what? Until the next shiny thing comes along. And then all of a sudden, oh my goodness. I mean, how many times when... When, you know, you were young and you got your first car and you're driving the car, and then all of a sudden you see another young guy with a nicer car. You know, you see, you see, you know, something else and you go, man, I love these new shoes. And you see someone else with nicer shoes like, oh, wow, I really love those shoes. But nice things only do what? They only last for so long until you see something nicer. And here, this is what the enemy tries to do. He tries to say, listen, that the God is trying to keep something good. And rather than saying, listen, give us today our daily bread. Whatever I need today, whatever you know I need today, that's what I want. But this is what the enemy does. He begins instantly to to go and says, listen, if you are the son of God or since you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Just like, you know, he says, has God said that you shall not eat? Well, notice what Jesus does. He answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Now I want to take this moment to share this truth with you, because here in verse 4, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy um, chapter 8, I think I said verse 2, it's verse 3. Deuteronomy 8, 3. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In verse seven, where Jesus said, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This is a passage from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16. So he's quoting a second time from Deuteronomy, first from chapter eight, then from chapter six, and then alas, in verse 10, when Jesus says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He's quoting from Deuteronomy six thirteen. Jesus here resists the temptation by quoting from the Old Testament book of the law. And Deuteronomy, if you're familiar with what the Hebrew is, is called the second law. That's what Deuteronomy means, the second law. And so he quotes from the second law, but he only quotes from basically two chapters, chapter eight and chapter six. Now, the amazing thing is when the enemy comes as if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread, then Jesus did say, hang on a second, let me pull out my scrolls. And he starts looking through the scrolls to figure out what's going on. Keep in mind, thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's not thy word is in thy Bible that I might not sin against thee, because if the word is in the Bible and it's not in your heart, what's going to happen? You're going to drift. It's so important to have those words, have those truths locked inside your heart so that when the temptation comes, there's already a word of God that is already guiding you in the life that you're walking. So when the enemy says, take a U-turn, it's like, I'm already going in this direction. Why would I want to turn? Mm -hmm. And so as the Lord now has the baptism of the spirit, he's there, he's been fasting, he's been seeking the Lord. And this is key, he's been looking for God's will. And as he's looking for God's will, as he's looking for God's direction, as he's looking for the direction of the Father in his ministry, he's given himself over for these 40 days in the same way as the law and the prophet. But what's amazing is this, as um, Moses was in ministry, Elijah was in ministry, Jesus here realizes, I'm in ministry and keep in mind that as you look to scripture, you have what's known as the first Adam, and then you have what's known as the last Adam. Jesus Christ is this last Adam. Through through the one man, he sinned, death entered the world. Through the last Adam, all of a sudden, you know, through his righteous act, you know, life comes to all men. And so we see here that this is what Jesus is doing. He's not looking at a scroll. He just simply begins to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 or chapter 8 verse 3 and then the devil took him up verse 5 into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle on the temple now this is kind of interesting now how does the devil take him up does he take him up in a vision does he take him up in the spirit does he get literally translate him in the same way as when um they're in the book of acts as um Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna say Philip because I, I believe it's Philip. Yeah, it's Philip because his daughters were evangelists. As, as he's there and he's ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch, all of a sudden God just translates him. he moves him. So my understanding is that that's how I would take this, that the enemy simply translates the Lord, brings him up to um, the pinnacle of the temple. So he's not there in a the vision. He's there in reality. And as he's there on the temple... What the enemy does is this in verse 16. He says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he uses the, the own his own words against him. He says, For it is written. Now remember what he said back in verse 4. He says, for it is written. And then, oh, you're going to play that game. All right. Well, let's do this. Throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot. Against a stone. So, as the enemy begins to do this, he quotes now from Psalm 91, verse 12. And what I want to do is this I actually want to take you to Psalm 91, and I want to share you really what the context of this passage is. In Psalm 91, it begins so beautifully He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. And he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes you shall look and see the reward of the wicked, because, now notice verse 9, you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor... Shall any plague come near your dwelling? For he shall give his angels charge over you and keep you in all your ways, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So what he's saying is, listen, I'm going to protect you from the deeds of others. I'm going to protect you in other people's sin. As you make me your dwelling place, know this: I'm going to watch over you, I'm going to protect you. So what the enemy has done is this, is he's taken the word of God and now he's changed the very heart of what that passage is. God says, I'm going to protect you as you make me your dwelling place. I'm going to be the one to watch over you when you're attacked. But here the enemy says, why don't you go ahead and test God to see if he's really... um, where God's really gonna watch over you. God's really gonna protect you. You should test God to make sure that he's going to do this. And I find it just absolutely incredible in here. What the enemy does is he uses scripture. And keep in mind, I do believe that the enemy knows scripture probably better than all of us. But what he is not gonna do is he's not gonna give you the scripture in its context. He's going to give you a scripture and he's going to take it out of context. That's why so often when I'm reading a passage and I want to quote one verse, I'll read two, three, four, six, ten verses so that you understand what the context of this so I'm not just trying to make scripture say something. I've seen ministers do this. And, and keep in mind that I know the scripture good enough. I can weave any yarn I want from the scripture. That's not what I want to do, which is why I'm trying to say, look, I'm going to show you this in context. This here is the word of God. Now, what he does is this. He tells the Lord, he says, the devil takes him up, verse 5, up into the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Now, I'm going to show you uh, another portion from Genesis chapter 3. Remember the first thing the enemy said is, has God indeed said? And of course, you know, that you shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Well, he was talking to the woman, and then the next thing the enemy said was in verse 4. Notice what he said. When the woman said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, in verse 3, lest you die. And the serpent said, you will not surely die. What is he saying to the Lord? Well, the first is, hey, get yourself something to eat. Has God indeed said that you shouldn't eat? And he says, wait a second, don't, don't give me that temptation, don't give me that line. He says, listen, where he said to, to, to the woman, you shall not surely die. He says, Throw yourself down at the temple and God is going to give his angels charge over you and then their hands are going to bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Keep in mind that as he's taking this out of context and really what he's asking is this, he's trying to get the Lord to say, God, look at me and see how precious I am. Would you see how precious I am? And so we see here is that lust of the eyes um, where, you know, Eve saw that fruit. It was pleasant to the eyes. And here Jesus is, is the enemy wants Jesus to ask the Father, how precious am I in your eyes? Look, at, in my eyes, I'm so precious. I should be that way in your eyes as well. So he says, just throw yourself down. And here's what the enemy does, is he begins to change the intent and the passage, and he begins to say, listen, will God, is God going to prove his love for you? Is he going to prove his care for you? You should be able to test God and make God prove that he cares for you. Not only in the food that you're eating, because God should always allow you to eat some food, but he should also do it to say, If I want to put myself in in harm just so that I give God an opportunity to prove how much he's going to care for me, this is here what the enemy is trying to do with Jesus. Now notice what Jesus does. When the enemy takes these two passages out of context, Jesus again in verse 17 says, but it's written again. So I love it because when people use scripture to twist something, you can actually use the clarity or the context of Scripture to bring it back into focus. So as the enemy takes it out of focus, what Jesus says is this in verse 7, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16. He says, don't tempt him. Why would you want to do that? That's what this is. It's, it's not, um, you're tempting me and you're asking me to tempt God. I'm not going to do that. And so he said, and what is it? No, I cannot be tempted. And so realize that if you're trying to tempt God into proving his worth and proving how much he loves you and improving his care, keep in mind that you're going against what Scripture says in order to do this. So that second temptation comes, and it's that same way. You see it right down the line, first with that passage of, um, there in, in First John chapter 2 where the lust of the, the, the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, you see also then how it's those same three things there with the enemy, but then also as the enemy spoke. Now, the third temptation here in verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. Again, I do believe you simply translated. And so the enemy brings him to this mount, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, he takes him up to this high mountain. And of course he says, all these things I will give to you. I want to take you to two passages because you have to understand that what's happening is the enemy's not lying. When he says all these things I will give to you, he's literally telling the truth. Two passages I wanna share with you. The first is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Let me read it to you. 1 John 5 19 declares this. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That he is the prince of this world, and the whole world is lying under the sway. There's another passage in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. I want to read this to you because as. As we're going to be starting at um, Calvary Chapel on Sundays, we're going to be starting the book of Revelation. And so one of the things that we're actually going to be seeing is that there's going to be a, a scene in heaven where everyone's weeping, everyone's crying. And there's this scroll and there's a scroll and they're saying, who is, is able to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And there's weeping because they said there was no one found in heaven or earth able to open the scroll. And it's just said, the father's sitting right there on the throne. The father's not able to open the scroll. And why? Well, we're going to see when we get into that passage that that scroll is a title deed to the earth. And, and what happens is this. God can't just simply take it away from Satan. Adam handed it to Satan. It's his. But what happens in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says this. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. See, there is gonna be a time that he's going to get all the kingdoms back. He will be handed the scroll because when Jesus here dies, and, and he dies for it. He literally redeems the world. He redeems us, yes, but he also redeems the world. And in doing that, he purchases back that scroll and the seals that Adam gave over to the enemy. So when he says here, all these things I will give you, what he's saying is this, circumvent God's plan. You don't have to die. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to take that plan Why don't you take a shortcut? You can have all these things because God wanted everything to come back to you. I'll give it to you if you fall down and worship me. And I find it absolutely interesting that here the enemy does offer him what is truly his. He's saying, I'm gonna give you the world, all the kingdoms, and that's what he does. He takes him to this high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, And their glories and all these things I will give you. Now, we've been recognizing all the words of the enemy there in Genesis chapter 3. And I want to take you to the last of the words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, where the enemy was like this, where he says, You shall not surely die. Because he says this in verse 6. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, that is of the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here what the enemy is trying to do with Jesus Christ is this. You know what? Why don't you be like God? You know what's good. You know what's evil. You know the path that you can take. Why does God have to be the one to direct your path? And I find it intriguing that here, exactly as the enemy said to Eve, "You, your eyes are gonna be open and you're gonna know, you're gonna be like God, you're gonna know the path. How many times has the enemy said, just take a quicker path? Don't take the path that I have, that God has for you. And understand, he wants you to take the easy way out. And as Christians, So often we take the easy way out. What's the easy way? Well, the path of least resistance, the path of least suffering, the path of of where I don't have to deny myself and I don't have to deny my carnality. I can do this path. And I find it interesting that here, he's wanting the Lord to escape the hard path. I want you, Lord, not to take the hard path. I want you to take the easy path. Um, absolutely incredible that what happens is this, that they're in the gospel of Luke. And I want to read you just one portion of scripture. In Luke chapter 24, verse 26, as the the Lord is on the, the road to Emmaus, what we see is this. In verse 26, as he's there talking to these disciples that were there on the road, and he's telling them about all the things that that the Lord had to go through, beginning at Moses, he makes this statement in verse 26, and this is key to understanding this temptation. He says in verse 26, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? So There was a path to glory that took suffering. There was a path to glory that took the path of denial, dying to self. And it was a path of obedience. And, and sometimes that path of obedience is a path of suffering. I try to tell um, people when, um, especially as they come to me, they, they say, you know, Pastor Lowell, we want you to marry us. And one of the first things I ask them is, okay, I have to ask you this. Have you, Well, first ask them if you've been pure. And then I say, have you set up a date? And if they say, yes, we've already got a date. And it's like, then why are you here? See, I'm here to walk you through to say we're going to look to Scripture and to God's will to see if God even wants you to be married. And you're already saying God's already said yes. Let's look to, to confirm these things. If he says yes, then by all the means we'll set up a date. You can set up the date on the same day or the next day. I don't care. But, but don't come with this process. Say, hey, I just have to get through this class, these nine weeks that you're going to take us through. And because we're already knowing we're supposed to get married, I think it's so important. Don't rush those times. Don't don't, don't rush those things. If you're, and I, I keep telling you, if you if you really think that God has called you, get rid of the date and let's look to this so that you don't have anything already in your mind to say God has already done this or, or I'm already con- you know convinced that whether God even tells me no, I'm already setting up a date. And so it's interesting that here. Satan says, just avoid the hard path, avoid the waiting. I'm gonna give it to you now. You don't have to die, you don't have to go to the cross. But I love what happens is Jesus, as he goes through the hard path, as he goes through the suffering, as he goes through the denial of self, and he goes to the cross. Because remember, while he was there on the Mount of Olives, he said, Father, if it's, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from you, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he surrendered himself over to the will of God. And it was that suffering ought not the Christ to have suffered to enter into his glory. And through that suffering, he literally not just got the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He got us. His blood purchased our souls. And how beautiful is that? So he says, all these things I'm going to give you if you fall down and worship me. Now... Jesus does this. He said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Of course, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. As he comes to this place and he says, listen, where, where Satan says, If you fall down and worship me, he says, no, you worship God, only God. And he says, listen, Away with you, Satan. Just." depart from me now for it's written worship the lord and him only shall you serve and i think one of the keys in really recognizing that where we can overcome satan is when your life becomes a worship when you have a life of worshiping god and satan says try this like why (laughs) why would i want that when i have this See, the more you worship God, the more you literally become aware tangibly of his presence in your life, of his presence in situations. There have been moments, and and there are still many moments in my life where I literally see God's fingers and a handiwork in my whole day. Just moment after moment after moment, I say, God, you did this, and I'm just worshiping in awe. And then he shows me something else, oh, Lord, this is amazing, and I'm just so Worshiping, and why would I be detracted from that into something else? That's like a kid being in a candy store, and someone coming saying, "Would you like some spinach?" <laughs> now, what kid is going to say, "Oh yes"? I mean, you know, a kid's going to say, "Yes, thank you for bringing me to the candy store. This is amazing." But, but here, what Satan does is he says, "Listen, I'm going to offer you something substandard. I'm going to offer you something that's less." And and when he says listen I am giving you this he says I'm worshiping God the Father why would I want to worship you Satan why would I do that and yeah the, the the through the worship of my father I'm going to go through suffering but there's going to be a glory on the other end and so often what happens is this that we choose to say I want a a quicker pleasure I want to not go through the longer route, I want something that's fast, something that's now, and I want it sooner, and rather than taking that long-term to get a greater gain. And so it's one of those things where if you take that time to walk the will of God, even though that will will bring us through times of suffering, there's a greater glory on the other end. And this is what Jesus shows us. He said, I'm not the Christ who have suffered to enter into the glory. So the true glory of God was what? Yes, he redeemed the world. He redeemed us. And, and through this, everyone worships the Father because of what? What Christ did on the cross. And the Father is glorified. Now, if he would have said, hey, I just bowed down and worshiped Satan. And I got this. Well, okay, you got the world, but what about us? Well, you guys are on your own. He said, no, there's a greater work that I'm doing. What the enemy does is he lies. He'll say, I'll give you this, but what happens is this. There's always a string attached, or this isn't included. Now, you think it's included, but when you read the fine print, it says, batteries not included. <laughs> it's that way with everything, and this is what Satan does. He says, I'm going to give you this. These other things aren't included. And he says, no, what the path of the Father is this. Batteries are included. Everything's with this. Everything is there and you receive the glory. So at this point then we see here that the devil left him. And in verse 11 it says the devil left him. Behold angels came and ministered to him. Now when the devil left him I want you to understand that the devil doesn't just leave him for good. I'm going to give you one passage to simply just jot down. And it's found in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. I'm going to read from 21 down to verse 23. In Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21, it says this, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you but he, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now this is important. The enemy will sometimes back away, but don't make the mistake of thinking he's not going to do a U-turn and come back. There, there's so many times where we think, okay, I've had this victory, I have this victory. And then we begin to do what? We begin to take our eyes off of the prize we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ and the work that's there if you're familiar with the book of Judges what happens is this there's a thing in the book of Judges called the sin cycle If you've never read the book of Judges or you've never studied it through this sin cycle what you're going to see is this the children of Israel find themselves um, drifting away from God so God's saying fine if you don't want me I'll back away now, once God backs away, the, the protection, the blessing also backs away because God has been protecting them. God's been watching over them. But once they say, we don't need you, God says, okay, I'll back off. Trouble begins to happen. And as the trouble begins to happen, they begin to cry out to God. So what God does is this. He sends a deliverer. He says, okay, I'll send someone, we'll deliver you. And so he sends one of the judges. They deliver the children of Israel. They're all happy. They worship God. And then they settle down for a period of time. And it's like, that was fine but we're good now the time has come and it's kind of worn off a little bit so they say god we can handle this on our own so he backs off well every time he backs off guess what trouble comes and it's that sin cycle they're they 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 begin to be at ease in their walk they no longer really pursue god with with a a vehemency and an intensity and when they back away from the lord and the god says okay i'll back away trouble begins to happen they cry out to god there's trouble please God come, and God comes, and then he He ministers, but then they're content again, and this is what happens. We, we see God move, and then we get content. We're not thinking the enemy's, you know, he's already been pushed away. He's not going to come back. Understand, he's going to come back, and he's going to try another door. He's going to try another window. He's going to try to get in. The temptations here are threefold. If he doesn't get you with the lust of the, 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 the flesh, if he doesn't get you with the lust of the eyes, he's going to get you with the pride of life, thinking, I think I know the path that I need to take better than God. Now keep in mind, let me just share with you a little truth. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. God is infinite. We are finite. God knows the end from the beginning. We don't even know today. So trust <laughs> when God says, I'm going to take you on this path. Let him take you on that path. So the devil leaves him, and then beautifully the angels come and minister to him. I'm just going to conclude this by sharing you just one passage in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Just jot it down. It declares this, Are they all not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? We'll be looking further at angels, and I don't want to get in-depth here. I want to just focus on just the temptation. Um, when we come back, we'll be looking at angels again, but... As, as we do so, I just think it's important for us to recognize it here. When the enemy leaves, that the angels come and they begin to minister to him. So make no mistake, God was there the whole time. The angels were there the whole time. They just had to wait till after this temptation was done. Why was the temptation? It proves one thing, that he is worthy to be our king. Mm-hmm. This is part of that coronation. And so when you're looking at this, this, these temptations when you go on, just realizing that Jesus is proving himself worthy to say what? I'm worthy to be the king. I'm worthy to be the last Adam. First Adam, he blew it. Me, the last Adam, I'm gonna be victorious and I'm the one who's gonna walk you through this. So um, it's just a great word for us to, to really see what the Lord has done. And I wanna conclude one last time to remind you that what Jesus does, he does as a man And the way that he overcomes these temptations is with the word of God. Something that you and I are able to do. But the key being that word of God has to be hidden in our heart. He didn't have a scroll. He didn't have a miniature Bible. He, He literally had this word in his heart. And so that enabled him to, with every temptation, to bring out, here's the path God wants for me. This is, this is the will that God has for me. And may that be our heart as the enemy comes in and tries to, to tempt us as well. So, Father, we are so grateful, so thankful for just this passage and just the intensity of what happens. We're seeing it as just temptations. But, Jesus, you were there 40 days, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days without food. And you were seeking the heart of God. And, and I believe you heard him. You heard him. And God gave you the right words, the right things to say in order to put your life continually in the hands of the Father. So we're asking that, Lord, that when the enemy comes to tempt us, would you give us those right words to enable us to be placed right in your hands. Mm-hmm. That you would then take us and then cup us and hold us to your heart that we can experience your love and your pleasure We want to simply worship you. We want to be in awe of you and glorify you. So do the work, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen.